Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Coffee and Poets, a series coming to you from the Naked Lounge, 1111 8th Street, Sacramento, California. Coffee and Poets is produced by Insa'a, and it happens every third Sunday at 5 p.m., so come on by, have some coffee, have some tea, and listen to poets interviewing poets. Or in this particular case, it's writers who also have poetry as one of their chosen genres. My name is Indigo Moore, and our guest today, in addition to her acclaimed book of poetry, Gravity, which we'll be focusing on today, is a best-selling novelist essayist and teacher with more than 30 years teaching experience. Let's take a moment to give a warm sacramental welcome to Elizabeth Rosner. How are you doing today, Elizabeth? I'm great. It's great to be here. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Okay, Gravity was your first book of poetry and was published in 2014 by Atelier 26 Books. Is that correct? That's right. Based in Portland, Oregon. Great. All right. I'd like to read just a quick summary from the back of the book. Composed over a period of some 20 years, Gravity is Elizabeth Rosner's profoundly searching account of her experience as the daughter of Holocaust survivors. In an extraordinarily powerful mix of poetry and prose, Rosner traces the earliest remembered resonances of her parents' past and her dawning awareness of the war history that colored her family home during her youth in Schenectady, New York. So that must have been quite an experience finding out your parents had almost a dichotomy. As far as the household is concerned, the people, there was one side of the family thinking one thing and another side of the family, you being another child, having no understanding of what had been going on to them. Well, you know, although I've written in my fiction about families in which the Holocaust was a silent and almost secret history, in my own family, I can't really remember a time that I didn't know that my parents were survivors of the war and that my father had been in a concentration camp and my mother had been in a ghetto and then in hiding. I literally cannot remember the beginning of that story. So in my in my understanding, it was it was just part of the texture of life in my family. There was no before I knew and after I knew. It was so there. it was just folded into everyday life. You it didn't yeah. affect you in any way. Oh, I'm not saying it didn't affect me. It affected <laughs> me profoundly, and it's just that I can't tease apart the effects from what somebody else might consider a normal childhood. It just was my childhood, and so most of my writing life has been an attempt to explore all of that. But of course, it's impossible for me, except by way of imagination, to think about what it might have been like had anything been different. What I did in my first novel was I imagined my way into a family where only one of the parents was a survivor because I wanted to understand if possible, not that these things really are understandable, but I wanted to at least portray what I thought might it, it might have been like when one parent had that kind of trauma and that kind of um, sense of scarring and woundedness and the other parent was always trying to heal that or repair it. In my case, both of my parents were survivors even though their experiences were really different. 
Now, you speak of all this very candidly now, mm-hmm. but in a recent interview, you spoke of the forbidden language mm-hmm. in your uh, household. Can you speak mm-hmm. a little more of that? Well, you know, in retrospect, when I use that phrase, um, for a long time, it was something very specific. It referred to the German language, that German in particular, even though it was my father's native language, was a language that we were never allowed to learn, my siblings and I. When you know, when you grow up in America, most public schools offer you a choice of foreign languages to study. German was one of the choices in the schools, but my family said, that's off the table. There are other choices, but not that one. And even though it was my father's native tongue, and in fact, my mother also spoke German, she acquired it like she acquired many languages, just kind of osmotically. Um, It wasn't a shared language for them, and it wasn't spoken in the house, except on very, very unusual occasions. And... So it was very literal, that sense of the forbidden. It was the language of the murderers. It was the language of genocide. It was the language of evil, basically. But the more I start thinking about that in a broader context as a metaphor, it means so much more than just the literal. It it means that there are subjects you're not supposed to raise. There are questions you're not supposed to ask. There are emotions you're not supposed to feel. Or if um, if too much sorrow comes up, somebody's quickly supposed to change the subject. So you were um, cognizant of all the reasons why this language was not spoken. I think so. I mean, it's so hard to remember, as I said, it's hard to remember kind of the before and after. Mm-hmm. I I do remember that when I asked my father how it was that my mother also spoke German, because my mother was Polish, she never lived in Germany, she never studied German, and my mother who's no longer living, I can't ask her this now, but um, my father would say she um, she just picked it up, and when somebody, like I said, on these rare occasions when somebody might say, how do you say such and such in German? My mother could think of it faster than my father. <laughs> and it was his it was his first language. So she had this remarkable gift. And yet, there was still something about the language that was just taboo altogether. And I think what I understood about it from early on was that it was a place and a time and an, a set of experiences that we weren't really supposed to look at too much. I mean, it, you know, there's an expression in um, in the recovery movement where they say, you can look back, but don't stare. <laughs> and um, I think I was always trying to violate that injunction, you know, because I wanted to stare. I and wanted to know more. you did, yes. Your books, your novels, and now a book of poetry uh, that's basically centered on that knowledge. So when did the change occur that you felt, okay, no more forbidden language, no more, we're not going to talk about this, I'm going to learn as much as I can, and it's going to end up in my writing? Well, so one of the first things I remember about staring at the past is um, being in a high school English class where our assignment was to write a biography of someone close to us. And because my sister's two years older than I am and had a lot of the same teachers, she had interviewed my father for this assignment two years earlier. 
and wrote about my father's life. Mm. When it was my turn, I also wanted to write about my father's life, but I only wanted to write about the war years. Uh-huh. I, I wanted to dive all the way inside these stories. And, you know, my father will remember this, I'm sure. We had a very contentious relationship. We argued a lot about a lot of different things. And so in a way, I think on some level, I thought this might be a way for me to get closer to him. And I distinctly remember a couple of moments where um, he started crying and it was it was scary. I was, I was aware that there was something I was doing to put him in that state, but I, it, it felt too important to let it go. Mm. And I think that was really the beginning, both of my serious inquiry and, and my feeling that this was important and it was actually important to both of us. Would you mind reading us a poem from it? Sure. Which one? How about Hamburg, 1943, (laughs) Schenectady, 1968? So um, this poem, I mean, the two years, uh, the the title is this split title, Hamburg, 1943, Schenectady, 1968. Um, Many of, of you who know European history know that in 1943, Hamburg was dramatically, devastatingly bombed by the Allies. Um, And um, apparently about 70% of the city was destroyed. And my father was um, 14 years old there. In 1968, I was in Schenectady, age eight. And that was a time that some of you may also remember where um, there was a lot of learning to duck and cover because of the Cold War. Once upon a time, the trolleys stopped. Bombs fell like rain, and fires burned everywhere, and rubble filled the streets, and buildings kept collapsing, and people lined up for hours to get soup in the park. My father lived in a fallen house, the only room left intact, the basement where he and his brother slept. In another world, I huddled in the hallway of my grade school with my forehead pressed to my knees and the teachers hissed for silence because we were giggling at our make-believe war as we practiced for the sirens that never screamed and the bombs that never fell. Mm, Wonderful. So I can't say for sure that at eight years old, I was making those comparisons, <laughs> but, um, but at 16 I was because I knew that, um, because I had heard these stories, I guess around the dinner table that my father's 16th birthday took place in the concentration camp. He woke up, it was April 4th, 1945, um, Someone gave him an extra piece of bread, and he hid the piece of bread for later because it would, would have been the only thing he would have gotten to eat that day. And um, and that was the day that the camp um, pretty much erupted into chaos because the rumors that of the Allied army being really close, the camp was about to be liberated over the next few days. And by the time he tried to go back to find the piece of bread, it was missing. Somebody had stolen it. And, um, 
uh, the story actually gets worse from there, so I won't go into it right now. But um, but I was very acutely conscious of the difference between my 16th birthday and his. Now, the experiences that we're talking about are really happened to your parents, but it seems it's uh, worked its way into your life. Can we talk a little bit about inherent guilt? Yeah. Um, so... I haven't said that much about my mother yet, and and my mother's experiences um, were in many ways so much closer to her emotional life that we were all very protective of not sending her into a state that that seemed too upsetting for her. But um, what you're asking is, again, it's sort of like, you know, I only know what it was like in my own family. Yes. I mean, I, I have very close friends. I, I know what, what it's like to visit someone else's family and sort of see the inside. But in my family, there wasn't that much difference between what my parents felt and what we felt. We, my siblings and I, and, and really I should say I, singular, because we each had our own experiences. But I felt... Um, that their experiences lived inside me yes. and that sometimes I was furious about that. Sometimes I tried to push it out of my body or out of my awareness, but it really didn't feel like something I could fully reject. And, you know, I, I don't really know why, except to say that it felt like it was my obligation and, and it felt like loyalty and it felt like love. Would you mind reading 65 years past liberation? If this poem had a date, it would be dated um, 19, no, 2009. And uh, so that was what, seven years ago. Um, and the title 65 years past liberation Maybe we'll become clear, and if not, I'll, I'll talk about it after. <clears throat> you learned early that life was booby-trapped, landmines lurking beneath the tablecloth, so that at breakfast, usually, someone exploded over soured milk or a speck of blood in the soft-boiled egg. Bitter coffee was never quite tamed by sugar, no matter how many teaspoons full you added. Caraway seeds from the toasted rye would stick between your teeth. By midday, catastrophes multiplied like stars. There were dangers on sidewalks as well as the highway. Strangers in the market aimed dark sideways looks at you. Trust no one, the instructions promised. Don't you read the newspaper? Your mother in hiding declined the name survivor. Your father beyond the camp refused the same word for his own reasons. So you deny it too, now that you understand something about the body's surrender. When the diagnosis came, a phone call from the surgeon on the morning of your birthday saying, why don't you come into the office so we can talk? The kitchen tilted and the chair lost its solidity, yet you recognized the arrival of the inevitable. Maybe now, at last, the worst thing was already here. 
You ate your cold cereal and sipped tea with something like ease, a moment of utter improbable calm. Hadn't they warned you it was possible to stay alive? Often, especially in gravity, <clears throat> you see images or events that have happened in the past, some that you weren't even around for, have intertwined with present day life. That this happened by, was it something you intended? Did it come out in your writing? Or was it something that you were planning for in preparation for writing gravity? Um, that's a great and complicated question. So um, with this poem that I just read, for example, um, you know, the nuances of, of the conscious, unconscious decisions that we make as yes. writers, you know, when I, so that reference in that poem to the diagnosis was um, getting diagnosed with breast cancer on my 49th birthday. And somewhere in my awareness was in fact this feeling that all of the catastrophizing I had learned to do in my life was preparing me for that. You know, that when bad news came, somehow you were braced for it. And, you know, that sounds absurd in a lot of ways. Like, you know, why spend so much time bracing for bad news? <laughs> like, <laughs> let the bad news get you, but, you know, don't waste don't all of your time. Yes, exactly. South, yes. Well, I didn't grow up in the South, but <laughs> I wish I did sometimes. So the idea that... Um, that somehow it would be less devastating if you were braced for it is, I guess, what the implication was. But, um, but at the same time, I also felt that I was being raised by at least one and a half, let's say, optimists. My father is one of the most. <laughs> my father's one of the most optimistic people I've ever known. My mother. Um, was what we used to call moody. My mother suffered from a mood disorder. It's still called that, trust me. <laughs> but so half the time she was really very full of joie de vivre. And so there was this sense of contrast, which was sometimes confusing. On the one hand, we were lucky to be alive. You know, when you're healthy, it's fantastic. And, you know, all is well in the world until it's not. But then when it's not it's because you knew it wasn't going to last the good news. You know, you knew that happiness couldn't stick around forever. Yes. Okay. Gravity and your third novel, Electric City, were both published in October of 2014. I know quite a few multi-genre writers. And, but to have something like that happen where an acclaimed book of poetry and an award-winning novel how a birth in the same month must mm. have been just absolutely amazing. The question is, how on earth did you do that? <laughs> well, I cheated, obviously, <laughs> um, <laughs> because a lot of gravity was written over a period of many, many years, as you read from the back jacket. Um, and to be really honest, I chose that timing. I asked for the poetry publisher to time the release of Gravity to coincide with Electric City because I feel so strongly that my poems 
are the autobiographical companion to my fiction. And, yes. you know, since Electric City is my third novel, I've learned that a lot of readers want to know what's the autobiographical part of this novel? <laughs> you know, which character are you? And did that really happen? And are those your parents or is that your town? And um, so the shorthand is I can refer them to gravity and I can just say, well, all your, all your questions are answered in this collection of poems and prose. But it was really because I felt the interconnectedness of the work so strongly. And, um, that for me, those side by side conversations, the way the novel echoes the poems and the poems echo the novels, um, were a way for me to say to readers, you know, you don't have to draw lines around what you read and you don't have to say, well, poetry scares me, so I only want to read fiction or yes. fiction scares me. I only want to read nonfiction mm -hmm. or fiction bores me or fiction doesn't teach me about the world or whatever reasons people give for for narrowing, I think, their mm -hmm. choices. My feeling about what I read and also what I write is that, um, you know, we put labels on these these things, but the labels aren't the most important things about what we write. Yes, because that would be the only explanation. Because you had two novels before Gravity. You had Speed of Light and mm -hmm. Blue Nude, both acclaimed. And then to jump into the lucrative, glamorous world of poetry, <laughs> <laughs> does it really make yeah. a lot of sense? Have you yeah. always written poetry? Well, you know, when, when the Speed of Light came out, um, because it's a very poetic seemingly poetic novel. And, and really, I guess you could say that about all three of my novels. People do say that, that there, there's lyricism in the writing, which yes, I take it comes as a, across very clear. Yeah. So I take that as a compliment. Um, and, it, and there was a way in which I was being very deliberate about that. I was, I was thinking about a poetic voice and I was asking myself, why should we only care about the resonance and weight of, of a single word when we're writing a poem. Why isn't that true for the full length of a novel? And so that was my, my mission, really, my goal for myself when I wrote The Speed of Light was I want to sustain poetic attention for yes. the length of a novel. But I was also writing poetry before that and during the writing of the novel. And so when The Speed of Light came out, a lot of people said, oh, she was a poet first and then she <laughs> became a novelist. But the truth is um, I was moving back and forth all the time. You're a writer. I'm a writer. Yes. And I was teaching full time during the course of the 10 years that I was writing Speed of Light. And that meant on a weekend, I wasn't really banging out a chapter of a novel. I was lucky if I was writing a stanza of a poem. So some of it was really about the quality of my own attention, how long I could sustain it. And you do all of those things. You're one of the few writers I know who makes a living strictly from navigating the fantastic world of literature. Okay, that's and I'm cheating there, too. <laughs> uh, well, I want to know how you do that. Well, I'm sure yeah. many people want to know how you do that. I, you know, I think my father wants to know how I do that, too, But and, and my accountant. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> um, I teach also. I teach privately. And when um, when I got my first amazing, miraculous, never to be repeated, apparently, book deal for um, The Speed of Light, I got this two book deal and for which I marveled because 
I didn't know what they meant by a two book deal. <laughs> I had just spent 10 years writing one book and what were they talking about? A second book. I, it didn't exist even as an idea. I had a full-time tenured teaching position at the time and I left because I thought this is going to be the beginning of my fabulous <laughs> life as a high-flying, best-selling author. And um, I did get to be a best-selling author, but the high-flying part... <laughs> Doubtful. So I teach privately now. So I, the I, dreams that most of us have of writing one novel and going to Easy Street, that's probably not yeah, going to happen. Not to this writer. Okay. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean that I'm not feeling like one of the most... I, I For years, I used to say to people, I hit the literary jackpot. I mean, I really do feel like I managed to find some kind of sweet spot where I earn just enough as a writer and my teaching, you know, my teaching is in some ways supported by my writing and my writing supports my teaching. Okay, that's and great, but you can't gloss over that. Give us a year in a life, a brief summary of what it's like to be you in a, in a year making a living strictly as a writer. Well, I don't even know if I could give you a day in my life, <laughs> but... Um, but I travel a lot. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I feel like I should have business cards printed up that say, we'll travel to teach <laughs> because that is the form my teaching takes now. So I get invited to give a talk. I get invited to give a three hour workshop. I managed to compile three or four things around a, a a given trip so that the trip gets paid for and then maybe my hotel rooms get covered and then I get to deduct my travel expenses and um, and pay for my dog sitter. You know, like um, I kind of break even that way, but I get to live what I consider to be a wonderfully autonomous creative life. And, and autonomy is not a small thing for me. When I was teaching full-time, um, I had to be on campus five days a week and um, I had to be in the classroom and I had to have office hours and I wanted to do that. I wanted to be available to my students, but my students took up a lot of room in my head and there wasn't a lot of room for characters to hang out there yes, yes. or voice or image. So, um, so there's some sacrifices that come with this lifestyle. Well, so no, I'm saying what, what I do get to do now is I compartmentalize the teaching more so that, um, I do this thing where I kind of parachute in and I teach for a few days and then I pack my bags and go home again and write. And that means I'm not writing steadily every day. Don't even ask me what my, <laughs> they use that D word discipline. What's your writing discipline? And I kind of say, I'm not familiar with that term discipline. Um, but, um, and yet you seem very prolific. I'm not prolific. I just get <laughs> things done. I really, I mean, <laughs> no, I feel I like, imagine people are writing that down right now, as you say. <laughs> no, but somebody, I, a very, very dear friend of mine who is, um, who has passed, but she used to say, um, Elizabeth, you have follow through. You really have follow through. And I took that to heart. I do. I'm able to finish things and not everybody can do that. So I recognize that there's the beauty of the beginning and then there's the beauty of continuing yeah. and then there's the extra beauty of completion. So um, somehow I do manage to do that, but prolific, I reserve that word for people who publish, you know, a new book every few years. Yes. And I do not do that mm. as you may notice. <laughs> Tell me about Mexico. 
Mexico. Okay. Um, my heart, my heart country is Mexico. How did that come about? Um, kind of by accident. I, um, when I was teaching, I started hearing stories about this place called San Miguel de Allende. And then one day a student who wanted to work with me on an independent study came into my office and sat down and said, um, by way of introduction, that he had grown up in San Miguel de Allende where his parents were puppeteers. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, there's a place in the world where puppeteers can raise a family. Like, I need to check this place out. So, um, so that just sort of finally did it for me. And I spoke Spanish. That, that was the language I chose to study when German was off the table and my sister had already taken French. Um, and so I, um, I decided to go explore. And right around that same time was when I got my book deal and when my mother died. And it just felt like a place I needed to experience for, I went for a month and it so happened to be a place that has attracted artists, writers, uh, filmmakers, musicians for decades, if not centuries. And now you own and, a house there. And, you know, like many people, I was one of those people who after my second visit to San Miguel, I bought a house. Mm. Yeah. And it was, it happened to be, a house I fell in love with that not coincidentally was selling for the same amount of money my mother had left me. Wow. So the exact same amount of money. <laughs> it was meant to yeah. be. Yeah. So I just, I, I heard my mother telling me what to do. <laughs> and my mother's name was Frida. And, and in Mexico, Frida Kahlo is so yes, much yes. of an icon that, um, and it's a very, very maternal culture in, in the mm. best ways possible for me. I, I feel like um, I felt very embraced there and very held, and I still do. So um, I only go two or three months a year. I'm hoping um, to go for longer. Each each year I say that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and having another language for a while when I was writing there, it was a little confusing to be trying to speak Spanish and still write in English. Mm -hmm. And so for some while I was trying to keep those things separate and I would just, when I was writing, I would not be speaking Spanish, but then it felt awful to be in a Spanish speaking country, not speaking their language. Yes, yes. So I think I have found a way now to do both, to write while I'm there and also um, speak the language of the people around me. I have one more question for you on gravity. Okay. Does it say what you wanted it to say? Okay, ask me that again. Does it say? You're just telling me that so you have more time to I'm, think. Yeah, see, cheating. Am I <laughs> a cheater or what? Does it say what you wanted it to say? Wow. I guess um, in order to answer that question, I would have to know what it says. And I'm Don't not worry, dead silence over the radio is fine. <laughs> no, it's just I'm not sure that I have a definitive answer mm -hmm. about what it says. I, yeah, and... I'm not being coy, really. I, I think that um, readers have as much to say about that as I do, in yes. a way. And what you read from the back cover of Gravity is what my editor wrote, right? Mm -hmm. So yes. that's what he says the book says. Mm -hmm. And I agree with him, mostly. Um, but I also find that 
even today, even right now talking to you and reading, reading these poems that I've been reading, I can feel how what I'm saying is changing all the time. The words on the page aren't changing, but how they actually resonate inside my body changes. And therefore, maybe the poem itself is saying something different every time. You know, I... It, it's pretty mystical poetry, if you ask me, and maybe all writing is. I mean, there are lots of sections of my novels that when I read them silently or when I read them aloud, Electric City, I got to do the full audiobook recording yes, for. Yes. So I got to spend 14 hours in a recording studio. It only reads for eight, but I read for 14 because of all the pages you turn and they have to edit that stuff out. Um, I heard myself reading that book, you know, out loud, every word. And I can't say for sure that I know who I was when I wrote that, you know, yes. and, and who wrote. Sometimes I look at portions of my books and I think, where did that come from? That just passed through me. And that's, I feel lucky when I can say that. Like, I think the best of my writing isn't me doing it. I really think when I'm at my best as a writer, I'm a vessel and I'm transmitting something with my ego as out of the way as possible. And so therefore I, I don't take credit for it. And, and so what I want it to say and what it does say, sorry, I'm really dodging your question. No, you're not. Um, yes. But I'm just, I'm really trying to be honest about it. I think that, um, I think that I'm still learning what I'm trying to say. And that's why I keep writing. I mean, I'm working yes. on a new book now that. I was just about um, to ask that. Yeah. What's coming through the vessel next? Okay. So the vessel is cracking with um, intensity right now because I'm writing nonfiction. And again, as I said before, it's not that I really differentiate among, among the genres, but. Um, I'm now, instead of trying to invent and imagine and craft a story and create a narrative, I'm allowing myself to be moved by ideas and the things I think about and care about. And right now, the biggest things I'm thinking about and caring about are questions having to do with memory and history and what happens when we cross that threshold between the firsthand witnesses to trauma and the inherited trauma yeah. and the storytellers leaving us and making us the tellers of their stories. And it returns us right to the beginning of the interview, right? Yes. Where, you know, why am I telling my parents stories? Well, because they are my stories too. And that by witnessing them, I, I become the teller of my own story as the carrier of their stories. Wonderfully put. Thanks. Are there any appearances or teaching opportunities that you can let us know about? Um, let me think for a second. Okay, so I'm going to be teaching in um, Vermont um, in late June, early July at the Green Mountain Writers Conference. I'm going to be teaching in Santa Cruz at the Catamaran Literary mm -hmm. Conference at 
the end of July, beginning of August. I'm going to be sending you to my website for the rest because I can't remember. <laughs> and that's at ElizabethRosner.com. Um, ElizabethRosner.com. And it's not updated perfectly either. It's so a beautiful site. You can, you can hit the refresh button a few more times. <laughs> it, it is a great site. I'm actually, I'm in love with the, my website designer, Ilsa Brink. And um, yeah, just go check out my website just for the beauty of it. It's worth it. Yeah. All right, Elizabeth, will you favor us, favor us with one more poem before you go? How about speaking to one of Germany's sons? Okay. Interestingly, it's actually one of the oldest um, poems in the book. Speaking to one of Germany's sons. This is not about apology. What forgiveness, after all, can possibly pass between us? None of it belongs here. It all belongs here. In the world where you and I can face one another, nothing to tell us apart. Ghosts float, whispering at our shoulders, our parents and the dead. If you were a window and I tried to see through you, wouldn't I find my own face in the glass, looking back and through and beyond? Your ghosts I would see there too, uniformed, maybe with dogs and maybe terrified, maybe trying to shape the word why or even no. And if not, if the hands of your ghosts are bloody, what can I say about that? Did we ask to be born into this place or that one? Could our fathers know that we would follow them, trying to make our own mistakes come out right? Don't our mothers wish that our sleep be sweet and untroubled, that our hands not tremble when we stretch them toward one another? Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Elizabeth. Let's Thanks. give a warm, warm, warm uh, goodbye to her. And on behalf of the producer and creator, Insa'ah and Naked Lounge, I'd like to thank you all for coming out tonight. Have a great evening. Thank you, Indigo. Thanks, everybody. Thank